Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. With me today are Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby. Wayne is the author of two New York Times best-selling books on animal welfare and a former president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. He has led efforts to pass more than 100 federal laws and amendments, 1,500 state laws, 30 ballot initiatives, and 500 corporate agreements. Marty is the executive director of the group and also its chief lobbyist in D.C., A lifelong horseman, he worked in the U.S. House of Representatives for Kentucky's Congressman Ed Whitfield as his communications director and agriculture policy advisor. He also served as president of the Tennessee Walking Horse Breeders and Exhibitors Association. So I never get tired of saying all that, guys. It just makes me so proud every time I read off all the credentials of you good people and and to know I'm here with you. So uh, thanks for joining us again, as always. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Yeah, and And thank you, Joe, for everything. Yeah, and Marty, you're sounding just fine on your fancy new Bluetooth uh, earbuds there. So you're, you're coming through loud and clear. So it's been a, a big week in terms of appropriations. Uh, the spending bill is making its way through. And Marty and Wayne, I, I want to go first before we get to our guest of honor this week uh, to talk about uh, horse-related issues. To get a 30,000-foot view of what is happening with the appropriations bill, what's good for it, uh, excuse me, what's good for animals in it, and what's not so good for animals in it. Well, Joe, it's Wayne. I'll, I'll start off and then kick it to, to Marty. The federal government, as you know, and so many listeners know, funds the operations of the agencies through congressional action. And it's about $2 trillion in spending a year, and it funds all the different agencies. Many of these agencies have important touches with animal welfare issues, and we work hard at Animal Wellness Action to see that laws get money behind them for enforcement, and we also work to uh, attach riders on relevant issues uh, to advance animal protection. And I want to start just by saying one of our priorities at Animal Wellness Action is to see that laws that we have worked to pass and that others have worked to pass are actually enforced. So we're really glad to see the Pet and Women's Safety Act, which we worked to lobby for on last year's Farm Bill, to create a program to set up animal sheltering capacity at domestic violence centers so that women can get out of a dangerous situation. $2 million in funding was secured in this spending bill. We also worked very hard, and this was a a very uh, mindful effort on our part, very intentional effort. We knew that the PACT Act, the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act, was going to uh, stand a likely chance of passage, and in fact it did. The president signed the bill in early December we spoke about on a, private, uh, on a previous edition of, of this podcast. And then last December, uh, we worked to pass a federal animal fighting law to ban animal fighting everywhere in the United States, including the U.S. territories, another subject of a prior podcast. And we worked to get language for the Congress to urge the Department of Justice and other federal agencies like the Department of Agriculture to enforce those laws. 
This is an ongoing process, but it's such an important one. And we also got a higher amount than in prior years for enforcement of the Horse Protection Act. And that's probably a good uh, kickover to Marty, um, who is really the nation's preeminent expert on uh, the problem of horse soaring and the Tennessee walking horse issue for a summary of that issue or, or, and, and the other issues that we were working on. Yes, thank you, Wayne. And I actually am calling in today from just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, so in the heart of sore horse country. The uh, U.S. Senate and House uh, agreed on the appropriation for $1 million for enforcement of the Horse Protection Act for the next fiscal year. Uh, the height has been in the past, I believe, around $790,000. So it's at least 200000 more than they've ever had to enforce the act. We hope that that means that the USDA will be present at more walking, racking, and spotted saddle horse shows, and that they will really work to try to make sure that the horses are not being soared, because it seems over the past few years that since Sonny Perdue became Ag Secretary, the pro-soaring coalition has just gotten away with more than they ever would have in the past decade under any other administration, whether it been Bush or Obama. So we hope this is a good sign and that they will see this as a means to be able to further enforce the act. We maintained the horse slaughter language uh, that defunds the inspections for horse slaughter plants in the U.S. That actually is a de facto ban uh, until we pass the SAFE Act. So uh, Americans won't be able to slaughter horses for human consumption, and that ban will be maintained in appropriations. Um, one of the more... Um, interesting issues as a standalone piece of legislation, an actual bill that was included in the appropriations package was the Rescuing Animals with Rewards Act, the ROAR Act. And that's been led by U.S. Senator Susan Collins, a Republican from Maine that is just tremendous on animal issues. She's terrific. And we could not ask for a better senator than her on our set of issues. And U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley from Oregon, who's a terrific animal advocate as well, along with Representative Vern Buchanan, a Republican from Florida that's in the U.S. House, and he led that bill uh, in the chamber uh, closest to the people and really had his hands in the pie and, and worked hard to get this through. So those three, uh, Collins and Merkley and Buchanan, all really worked hard to get the Roar Act included. It had previously passed the House and the Senate, but there was a technical difference between the two bills that they uh, couldn't really come to terms on. So they found a way to actually take the Senate version, and the Senate version is what is included in the greater package. That would provide uh, funding to the State Department to offer rewards for those who may turn someone in that is ultimately prosecuted and convicted of wildlife trafficking. It's a $10 billion a year industry where terrorists that we want to fight on so many fronts are actually being funded by the sale of ivory, any number of types of different animal parts uh, that are considered involved in wildlife trafficking. So we're thrilled to see that legislation get enacted into law. That means we have had two bills signed into law this year now with the PACT Act and War Act both. And we had a number of other items that were related to, uh, Wayne may want to talk about the pet food issue and uh, of course the wild horses that uh, really didn't turn out that well for us in appropriations, but it could have been worse. Yeah, Joe, just to wrap this up uh, before we get to wild horses, um, the Congress did continue 
um, language to block the U.S. Department of Agriculture from inspecting horse slaughter operations on U.S. soil. This has largely been in place for the last 12 years or so, and it's important to prevent slaughter plants from opening up in New Mexico or Oklahoma or other places where slaughter interests have threatened to do so. And uh, there was an important issue on the pet food issue. There has been more and more investigation of what is actually in our in, in pet food that we're feeding to our companion animals. And there have been very heavy, heavy levels of, um, of uh, excuse me, very high levels of heavy metals uh, in the pet food, as well as sodium pentobarbital, which is a euthanizing agent. And that is suggesting that some pet food actually is coming from renderers who take euthanized dogs and cats and, and put them in the mix with other dead animals and other products that are then sold to pet food companies. So Representative Marcy Kapler got some language in uh, to explore this issue and to really get to the bottom of what's in our pet food, which I think should be the subject of a future podcast on our part. So Wayne, before before we move on, am I hearing you correctly that part of Old Roy may actually be Old Roy? Yes, uh, sadly so. Uh, there have been a number of major recalls after sodium pentobarbital, uh, WJLA TV in in Washington D.C. did an exhaustive report the, again the ABC affiliate uh, with a lab that tested dozens of companies selling pet food, and there were very high levels of sodium pentobarbital that led to the recall of 110 million cans of pet food. Uh, and I think it continues to be a problem as well as the heavy metals and other carcinogens and other products that are in our pet foods. I think the rates of cancer and other diseases in our pets are inordinately high, and I think it has something to do with the food. So we need answers, and uh, this spending bill, thanks to Representative Kaptur, includes some money to explore some of these really important questions. So much going on. Um, one of the things that I see headlines about very regularly, and I know it's a hot-button issue uh, on the animal welfare front. I know it's uh, a very important topic to people who may not be all that deeply enmeshed in animal welfare, but they love horses and they are hyper-aware of their treatment. There's something special about the horse, I think, to the American imagination and the culture that elevates these beautiful animals to a point where uh, any kind of cruelty or neglect really grabs the attention of, of people. And that's what we want to talk about for the rest of the show. And that is, what are some of the major issues uh, confronting our horses, wild horses in particular, our burrows, what's being done to protect them, and who are the, the evildoers, the, the villains uh, in this entire landscape, and how can uh, animal heroes come to the defense of, of these horses. And for that, uh, we've got a special guest with us today who is the head of the American Wild Horse Campaign. Her name is Suzanne Roy. She is the campaign director. She's a 25-year animal welfare professional. During her career, she has worked to improve the plight of elephants, chimpanzees, marine mammals, and other animals, both in captivity and in the wild. In 2009, she turned her attention uh, to the fight to save America's wild horses and 
uh, Burroughs. So we are really super glad you're here, uh, Suzanne. Um, tell us what's going on in your world and, and what do people who love horses and animals need to know? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, and uh, thanks for asking a very broad question. <laughs> I'll try to do my best to summarize what it really is a complex issue. But first, I like to start with echoing what you said about how Americans feel about wild horses. Um, they are, of course, iconic symbols of freedom for our country. They are one of only two animals protected by a special act of Congress as uh, symbols for the nation. The other, of course, is the bald eagle. And we've done polling that consistently shows the public's strong support. 80% of Americans want wild horses protected on public lands and opposed slaughtering them. And in Nevada, where half the nation's wild horses are, the support is even stronger. 86% of Nevadans um, support protecting the horses as important symbols for the state and for the West. So the public support is there. Um, way the 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 challenge we face is um with the bureau of land management that has responsibility for managing most of the horses in the west um and the powerful cattlemen's lobby uh which views wild horses as competition for cheap forage that's available to them on public lands thanks to our tax subsidies and so the cattle industry pushes for um, roundup and removal of, of most of the horses. Um, it's a challenge that we've been fighting uh, for many years, uh, but it became even more challenging this year when, uh, shockingly, the Humane Society of the United States, the ASPCA, and a California sanctuary called Return to Freedom decided to join the cattle industry in uh, lobbying for a enormous an enormous funding increase to the BLM wild horse and burrow program budget for the purpose of rounding up as many as 20,000 horses uh, from our public lands in 2020 alone and this is an unprecedented uh, level of roundups and removals uh, from public lands and so um, it became a, a large challenge to be facing both the cattle industry and these these large animal welfare groups. Um, and we have teamed up with Animal Wellness Action and um, the Cloud Foundation, another wild horse advocacy group. Um, and we work in uh, coalition also with some conservation groups um, to try to uh, bring some sanity to the the, the issue of how our wild horses should be protected and managed on public lands. So when we talk about removal, where to where are they removed? So wild horses are protected under federal law in 10 western states. Um, most of the horses, as I said, are in Nevada. There are large populations in Utah, Wyoming. Um, California has some significant wild horse populations. Most of the boroughs are in Arizona. Um, so there are there are populations of wild horses on public lands managed by the BLM in 10 western states. Uh, the way that they are removed from public lands is the BLM contracts with wranglers who uh, use helicopters to chase the horses out of their high desert habitats 
stampede them for miles over very rugged terrain and all kinds of weather and, um, you know, run them into traps where they are captured, loaded onto trailers and sent to feedlot pens. Uh, and currently we have about 45 to 48,000 wild horses and burros in these holding facilities uh, off the range. And so that's that's how they're removed. Um, the reason they're removed is because the BLM has set these very low allowable population limits. Um, and so you can have an area where there are 100 horses and 1,000 head of cattle, and the uh, the population of horses will increase to 120 horses, and they'll say the horses are overpopulating. The reason they say the horses are overpopulating is because they are allocating 80% of the forage in designated wild horse habitat to um, privately owned livestock. And so they keep the numbers of horses low so that they can maximize uh, commercial livestock grazing in these public land areas where wild horses live. So that's where the pressure to round them up comes from. Um, and this year, um, as I said, we faced a, 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 a serious challenge from a very concerted effort to secure um, it actually started out as a lobbying for $50 million for the BLM to round up more horses. Um, they were successful in uh, getting Congress to appropriate uh, $21 million to, uh, toward this effort. Um, but like Marty mentioned before, working uh, through our work on Capitol Hill, we were able to put some strings on that appropriation. Um, and I don't know, Mark, hey, if you want to go into yeah, more well, detail. Hey, yeah, yeah, I wanted yeah, to yeah, jump in yeah, if yeah. I could. It's Wayne. And, and I, I want to go back to this resource conflict in the West that, that Suzanne mm -hmm. mentioned. The, the wild horses and burrows are roaming vast areas of our public land, mainly Bureau of Land Management lands, but also uh, U.S. Forest Service lands, national forests. And this is a classic resource conflict for ranchers. The ranchers don't like wolves. Uh, they don't like mountain lions. <laughs> they don't like grizzly bears. Uh, and they don't like wild horses. They don't like the predators because the, the predators could potentially kill the livestock. They don't like the wild horses because they eat similar forage. And the ranchers basically think that every wild horse uh, who's out there is is uh, a competitor with their livestock. Now, these livestock represent just a small percentage of all animals going into the beef supply, uh, but they drive predator killing, they drive wild horse removals, and it's been a very orthodox position for animal welfare groups for decades to oppose these mass roundups of wild horses and burros because we believe these are, these are uh, animals who deserve their place on our public lands, they are symbols, of, uh, of the American West. They are protected by federal law adopted in 1971. And this incredible turnaround of several animal protection groups to support the idea of rounding up 20,000 horses a year, methods that are demonstrably inhumane that all of these groups have criticized for years on end is something that is absolutely head spinning, Joe. 
And that is why, you know, we've been working with Suzanne and, and the American Wild Horse Campaign uh, at AWA to lobby against BLM being um, ruthless in terms of its management of wild horses and Congress giving uh, BLM money to engage in this ruthless behavior. Uh, Suzanne, tell us about the American Wild Horse Campaign. What's your organization um, about? What are its chief objectives? Well, um, <clears throat> we are the nation's largest wild horse advocacy organization. We've got a following and supporter base of over 800,000 uh, Americans. And our mission is to preserve and protect uh, Americans, America's wild horses and burros on our Western public lands and, um, and also to promote their humane management as opposed to the inhumane and unscientific uh, management methods that are employed today. That's mm -hmm. our primary focus. And you participate in coalitions as well. I mean, these things take multiple groups a lot of times. Um, who are some of your partners and how do you collaborate to accomplish your objectives? Well, we do. We have a coalition of um, 60 organizations that have endorsed our mission. Um, and uh, we have worked, as we said, in partnership with Animal Wellness Action, the Cloud Foundation. Uh, I think we have about 60 other organizations that we um, got to sign a letter um, opposing this uh, Roundup uh, plan, the mass removal funding. And so we, you know, we act as a um, information sharing center. We try to keep up to date and share information on the latest uh, policy issues affecting wild horses. We create action alerts that our coalition partners can use to weigh in on, on wild horse issues. We do sign-on efforts. Um, you know, there are a lot of ways that we work in coalition. We have, we sometimes do rallies um, where we bring in a lot of groups, including local groups. And then we do place a real uh, priority on, on supporting local organizations, especially those that are managing uh, local wild horse herds uh, humanely. Um, so we have mentored and started and support uh, a number of local organizations uh, across the West. Marty. Tell tell us a little bit about Sonny Perdue. It's a name that's come up earlier. Uh, what role does he play in this, and what do our listeners need to know? Well, you know, Secretary Perdue doesn't really play a big role in this because most of this is under the Bureau of Land Management, which is the Department of Interior. But I will say, as it relates to this plan that would round up as many as 130, 140,000 wild horses over 10 years, the acting BLM director, William Perry Penley, recently said in print that the long-term cost for removing these wild horses would be upwards of $5 billion taxpayer dollars. So when we're talking about subsidizing cattle ranchers, we're not only talking about the government propping them up and removing the wild horses, we're also talking about an expenditure in this day and time that we really don't, as a nation, have money just to throw away on something like this. So... I think that's uh, an important factor to consider. And when Suzanne was also talking about working together in coalition, we've been able to really create a lot of awareness, especially on Capitol Hill, because I do believe that if we had not come together, 
then the Humane Society and Humane Society Legislative Fund and ASPCA would have probably had their plan just uh, rubber stamped and done. And we have worked with the chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee, which is the authorizing committee on interior issues, uh, Raul Grijalva, who is a Democrat from Arizona. He is a tremendous leader, and he is very much against the type of methods that would be utilized in the Humane Society and ASPCA's plan, and also that they don't have language and protections for things uh, such as sur surgical sterilization. And so he's been a terrific champion. We've worked together in a coalition with these groups, Suzanne's group, and we had a briefing at Capitol Hill last month, I believe, that we all spoke at, created a lot of awareness, and then also worked to get a letter together that the members of the House, very bipartisan, uh, Mr. Grijalva, Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler, who's right in the middle of impeachment with everything that's going on in Washington, D.C., and then also Matt Gates, a Republican from Florida, and David Schweikert from Arizona. So bipartisan members of Congress working together, and that letter clarified the position of our organizations and Mr. Grijalva about the plan in general. So just wanted to throw that in as well. Okay. Yeah, I think it's important, well, this is Wayne again, Joe, that that what, what Marty has said is significant. You know, when lawmakers see traditional adversaries like the National Cannabis Beef Association and the American Farm Bureau Federation aligned with HSUS and the ASPCA, they think, oh, everything's fine. And, and it's been difficult to just get their attention to take a look at the details. The idea of spending hundreds of millions of dollars, or as the BLM director even suggested, I mean, it's a crazy number to think it's spent, it would be billions to round up these wild horses, but it shows that he wants to round up the vast majority of horses and essentially depopulate um, horses from our Western public lands. And, you know, there are, again, this idea of rounding up 20,000 or 25,000 horses a year and the inhumane nature of that once lawmakers started to take a look and they got past this notion, oh my gosh, traditional adversaries have united, let's bless it, and start to see the details, that is when, you know, Chairman Grijalva, who is a wonderful animal advocate, who has shepherded many bills uh, through his committee already, spoke up, and we have bipartisan support. So I have no doubt that once people look at the details of this, they're going to be pretty appalled. And one other element I think that's very important to note is that, you know, we're not saying to just let wild horses breed without interruption. Uh, our organization, the Wild Horse Campaign and Animal Wellness Action, support active use of fertility control in the field. And we think that is a way to humanely manage the populations while also limiting reproduction so we can achieve some sort of balance in the West. Right now, it's unbalanced. There are millions of cattle and sheep on our public lands and a relatively modest number of wild horses. What they want to do is skew this already lopsided situation so there are more cattle and sheep and fewer wild horses. We want to kind of maintain a balance uh, as to what we've got now. And frankly, you know, we'd like to see these, these cattle and sheep off of our public lands. They're a menace. They're a threat to predators. They're a threat to riparian areas. Obviously, the cattle industry is a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, and this is just not the right place for these for these animals. Yeah, you know, you know, one interesting thing <clears throat> way to think about this is that they are rounding up horses who evolved 
in North America in the habitat where they are. Um, and they're very highly adapted to this high desert habitat. They're rounding them up and moving them to pens and pastures in Oklahoma and Kansas and places where cattle usually graze. And then they're putting cattle that are evolved in Asia, in the humid climates of Asia, and are completely unsuited to the Western landscape. They're putting cattle out in place of the horses that were um, that were highly adapted to that environment. So it's like terrible from so many directions. And then the cost, they, they, it costs a $5 per day per horse. So it's $150 a month to warehouse a horse in a holding pen. And we're taking that horse off. We're paying $150 a month to warehouse the horse so that a rancher can put his cow out at, and the grazing fees that the taxpayer gets in exchange for that are $1.35 per month. So we're paying $5 an animal per, I mean, sorry, $150 a month to warehouse a horse in order to get $1.35 per month in grazing fees for the cow. And then we're subsidizing this whole industry and it produces 1.9% of America's beef supply. And it potentially costs Americans as much as half a billion dollars a year to subsidize this industry. And then as Wayne said, it's, this industry is responsible for so much destruction of wildlife from the wolves to the mountain lions, to the coyotes, to the everything. It's just a devastating uh, industry to the public lands. It really does not belong there. There's a whole federal agency, Joe, called USDA's Wildlife Services back to Sonny Purdue, who oversees this mm -hmm. as the Ag Secretary. This is a federal agency of hunters and trappers who kill the public's wildlife to make our public land safer for grazing animals. And Suzanne mentioned they kill 100,000 coyotes a year. They kill hundreds or thousands of bears and, and mountain lions. This is, a, this is a disgrace, and so much of it's happening with our tax dollars, just like these roundups of wild horses and burros. In Nevada, they have two, the USDA has two fixed-wing aircraft that fly full-time just gunning down coyotes from the air for the ranchers. So, so, if, well, if, so if this beef contributes only, I think you said, Suzanne, 1.9% of our of of Americans consumed beef, where, where is the rest of this beef going? Who are we benefiting with all this, with cheap beef? The, it's just the volume. They're, they're producing such a small volume. The, most of the, the beef so, that's raised is raised in the, in the east, right? Wayne, you probably know more about that. Yeah, it's raised in, yeah, cattle are basically, Florida. you know, on, yeah, they're on pastures in Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, and these are mm -hmm. private lands. And and that's where the preponderance of these animals, you know, obviously Nebraska, the Midwest states are huge for this. Uh, but, you know, you really see the big public lands in the in the western 11 states. And this has just been an historical legacy when there were cattle drives, you know, many years ago. And the ranchers just kind of took a hold of our public lands. And, you know, this is why you have a guy like Cliven Bundy. I'm sure some of our listeners heard about this guy who, you know, he, he was grazing his cattle in Nevada, and he didn't pay even the unbelievably low subsidized rates, and he thought that, you know, the federal government doesn't have any authority here. And these are the people who are driving these decisions. They don't want wild horses and burros out there, 
And it's just hard for me to imagine that HSUS and these other organizations are, are aligned with these, uh, with these extremists, um, with the Cattlemen's mm-hmm. Association. What, what's the rationale for doing, for doing so, Wayne? Why, why are they saying, you know, the best you can report their arguments? Why are they saying this makes sense all of a sudden? It, you know, it's, it's really hard to figure out, Joe. I mean, the public posture has been if, if you have too many wild horses in burrows, the power of the ranching lobby is going to, to cause uh, horse slaughtering to resume. Well, the reality is in this 116th Congress, this two-year period uh, since the November 2018 election and, and, and when lawmakers are reelected and then seated after the, the November 2020 election, we have super majorities of House and Senate members who are opposed to horse slaughter. Uh, we've never been in a better position to fend off horse slaughter in the United States Congress. We have fended it off when Republicans control both chambers, uh, when we've had Democrat presidents, Republican presidents. We're in a strong position. This was not an urgent circumstance. And really, what, when I was at HSUS and uh, when uh, you know, Suzanne started her group in 2009, we've been pushing for BLM to do more fertility control. They treat this as, as, as some exotic, you know, sort of, of, of technology and strategy that is impossible to execute on the ground. And I've been out in the field um, contracepting uh, burrows in Arizona, contracepting wild horses in Colorado. Suzanne has a major program with the American uh, uh, Wild Horse Campaign in Nevada, which has uh, probably half of all the wild horses in the West. These are successful programs, often executed with volunteers working with just one BLM agent who, who provides some assistance, but it's been wild horse advocates doing this work um, with animal groups often paying you know, some of the freight, and the BLM should have been doing this for years, but it won't do it because it has a roundup cowboy culture. The way that they do population control is by getting on the helicopters and getting on the horses and rounding up the animals and removing them, not by doing fertility control. And they need a tremendous attitudinal shift. And what uh, HSUS and the other groups did is they have essentially blessed mast roundups. I mean, 20,000 horses a year, this is, this is devastating for horses and inhumane to horses. And I, I just can't really understand any legitimate rationale for their positioning on this issue. So to, so to summarize, they're essentially saying, proponents of the, the roundups generally, um, we better let them round them up because if the problem gets worse, then they'll start slaughtering them. I mean, is that essentially the shorthand way of looking at their argument? Yes, I think so. Suzanne, yeah. do you agree? Yeah, I, I would say that's true. They're, they're claiming that they struck this grand compromise with the livestock industry. Um, and they got their buy-in for non-lethal management. And so they are saving the horses from slaughter. That's their bottom line. But the reality, as Wayne stated, politically, slaughter is off the table. When the Trump administration came in in 2017, they requested Congress lift the ban on slaughtering wild horses. And this was the most dangerous time we faced because the Trump administration was in the White House and the Republican Party controlled both the Senate and the House. So, the, so 
it was, you know, it was a setting for the administration to get what they want on a number of policies. And we mobilized a massive grassroots uprising against slaughter, and we held it off. The Senate would not, the House voted for slaughter, but the Senate would not go for it. And the final bill um, in appropriations that year maintained the slaughter ban. So once we defeated that, it was clear. And now we have a Democrat-controlled House, so it's even less likely that slaughter would be legalized, right, in this in this current configuration. And you even have get, the White House saying that, that they're not going to they're going to pursue non-lethal methods. Yeah, without we, we I I agree, Suzanne. Yeah. I think we'd get 280 or 300 votes on the House floor against horse slaughter. Not even a close call these days. And and the Senate, no. the numbers are also strong. So this whole rationale is without without foundation. Right. So, and the irony is that they're making it more likely if this plan were enacted and they round up, the plan would ca- calls for rounding up 20,000 horses per year for the first three years and then five to 10,000 horses per year for the next seven for a total of 130,000. That's every horse living out there today and 45,000 yet to be born. And all these horses would go into the holding system. They would almost triple the numbers we have there now. And that would create a financial burden that would, it makes slaughter more likely if this plan is enacted. Because the Congress at some point is going to pull the plug on funding for feeding feeding wild horses that have been removed from the range. So they claim that it's it's holding off slaughter, but it's actually, if it were to be implemented, makes slaughter more likely over the long run. So, so, so Wayne, what, what do you do to uh, sterilize these horses? I assume you don't just get a bunch of loudspeakers and play Lawrence Welk for them before nighttime, right? I mean, what does it take to get these, to get these horses to, to stop breeding? Yes. Well, there's a there's a non-hormonal uh, vaccine uh, that is a a uh, fertility control drug that's delivered essentially by a dart gun. You can also attach um, the the um, uh, the needle with with the with the uh, vaccine in it to the end of a pole. If, the, if you can get close enough to the horse and just jab the horse in the rear. You focus on the mares, on the female segment of the population, and it's best to hit a high percentage of the mares um, in a band or a herd. And if you can do so, you can forestall reproduction for uh, a couple of foaling cycles. They often need then a booster, and that can be done. Um, And, you know, it's not easy, but it is very, very doable. And while horse advocates have been doing it, and I think Suzanne you know, has really done a remarkable job with her team on a program in Nevada, which has been the state that many of the BLM folks have cited, well, it can't be done, the horses are too wild, they're behaviorally, you know, so so wild that people can't get close enough to them. And I think Susan's team has done more um, sterilizations, um, uh, excuse me, the, you know, the fertility control applications um, than BLM has done throughout the entire West during a certain period. So Suzanne, maybe you have yeah. uh, a little more uh, granularity you can offer there. Yeah, we have a fertility control program using the PZP vaccine and it's done by remote darting. 
by a team of about, we have really nine hardcore volunteer darters that are out there <clears throat> really spending a lot of time in the field darting horses. So, um, and this is through a contract with the state of Nevada on a population of wild horses that fall under state jurisdiction. They're not federally protected. And there are 300,000 acres uh, in their range. It's called the Virginia Range and 3,000, approximately 3,000 horses. And since April, our um, volunteers have darted um, over 800 mares and they have um, delivered about 1,200 fertility control treatments to 800 mares. So in the first year, you do a primer and a booster shot. They get two shots. Um, so this is a really unparalleled record. I don't think there's a program this large anywhere. And um, it compares to the BLM. The, the entire BLM in 2018 darted 702, not darted, but delivered 702 fertility control treatments um, to wild horses all over the West. And then, you know, you compare that with our numbers in nine months over 800 horses and 1,250 fertility control treatments. That's like, um, uh, it just shows you that where there's a will, there's a way. Right now, there's no will at the BLM to do this. And the interesting thing, again, going back to HSUS and ASPCA, they keep saying, this is going to be used for fertility control. In fact, I have sat at a meetings where the Humane Society lobbyists are across from the BLM, and the Humane Society is saying, the, this we're, this this plan and this appropriation is going to be used for PZP fertility control, and it's not going to be used on this other method, which is very cruel, where they surgically remove the ovaries of wild mares, very dangerous, very cruel. They say it's for PZP, and the BLM says PZP doesn't work. We have to surgically sterilize the mares, but we can't do anything till we get down to this very low population limit. So all the funds are going to be used to round up horses. I mean, they sit at the table. They know what the BLM is going to do, and yet they're pushing this narrative that this is non-lethal and that, you know, it, that they had to do this to save the horses from slaughter and that it's really a fertility control plan. And you can see all their promotional materials about the appropriations bill. They never once mention the number of horses that will be removed from their homes on public lands with this funding. They simply are silent on it. Why, why, why not um, uh, geld the, the stallions as opposed to sterilizing the mares? Wouldn't that be easier to, to merely do the gelding? That's a really common question, and there's two reasons why gelding isn't a great idea. One is... Um, all the science shows that to be effective, any sort of contraception, uh, fertility control method needs to be female directed because one or a few intact horses can impregnate multiple, multiple mares, right? Mm -hmm. So it would be very hard to sterilize all the males in a population. And then you wouldn't want to anyway because um, sterilizing them destroys their natural behaviors. So the difference between a domestic horse and a wild horse, they're of course the same species, but what differentiates them is their wild behaviors and their social organization. And that makes that's what's protected by law. It's what makes them interesting. It's what makes them wild. 
And if you castrate the stallions or you remove the ovaries of the mares, you take away those reproductive hormones that drive their natural behaviors. So you're basically taking the wild out of a wild horse and you're compromising their ability to maintain their social organization and they're really everything that makes them wild horses and enables them to survive in these, you know, rugged areas of the West. And so even the National Academy of Sciences, which did a comprehensive review of the BLM program in 2013, recommended against both, um, they call it spaying the mares, which is removing their ovaries, and um, castrating stallions because of the behavioral and social impacts that those things will have. Um, And because there are methods available, like the PZP vaccine, that don't impact the natural behaviors like that. Gotcha. Um, Wayne, any final thoughts? Uh, what have we not touched on that you'd like to get to before we wrap up? Well, Mar- Marty, of course, has worked hard with, with me and the rest of our team at AWA to build support for the SAFE Act, which is a federal ban on the interstate transport of horses for slaughter, uh, as well as the live export of horses to Canada and Mexico, where they are slaughtered still by the tens of thousands. Uh, and if the folks at, at HSUS and the ASPCA had been good negotiators, maybe they could have gotten a deal to have the Cattlemen's Association and the Farm Bureau support the SAFE Act. Uh, but those groups have been silent uh, on that issue and historically opposed. So we're assuming that they continue to oppose that legislation. So the whole thing is, is just mixed up. Um, this plan, uh, as originally crafted, would call for this massive roundup and depopulation of our wild horses to benefit the cattle industry uh, because they don't like wild horses and burros. The same cattle industry that's slaughtering our predators and contributing massive amounts of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, polluting riparian areas, trampling areas, threatening species, um, you know, of, of many types. And you know, we're going to fight this. Um, it's been great. Marty and Suzanne have done such good work on the Hill to, to try to reduce this amount that the Congress appropriated for this ghastly plan. And now Suzanne has mentioned that there's got to be uh, an, an actual plan developed. Congress has got to take a look at it. That's why we're really hoping that Chairman Raul Grijalva from Arizona, the chairman of the Natural Resources uh, Committee, uh, really plays a, a blocking role on this. It'll be very, very sad to see um, if we see 20,000 wild horses and burros rounded up from our public lands over the next year. It's my fear. Uh, we're going to fight it, and obviously we've got a great partner with Suzanne Roy and her team. Marty, what are some key dates to watch as we go through you know, Congress coming back after the first of the year? Well, I think uh, we'll have to begin early planning for the appropriations work for FY 2021 now. They have finalized the language uh, for the appropriation on this $21 million, but we'll also keep pushing on the BLM early in the year and to make sure that whatever plan is submitted to Congress uh, includes language that prohibits surgical sterilization and does not allow for these roundups and the potential for slaughter. I mean, it, it really is so terrible. I was reading something, I think, from last year that Suzanne and I and some others were talking about, and there are even mayors that are mid-birth having a foal in the middle of the range that a helicopter comes and is chasing them to round them up. A mayor, while she's actually 
foaling a baby. I mean, it's so terrible. Um, but uh, the advocates out there, the people that are listening to the political animal, the people that work with Suzanne and so many other horse organizations have really wised up. We've definitely gotten the message out there and more and more people are coming on board with us. And I do think that the other organizations like the Humane Society and the ASPCA are definitely losing steam and losing donors and volunteers and supporters because they've made such a terrible decision in supporting this plan. Suzanne Roy, campaign director for the American Wild Horse Campaign. That's AmericanWildHorseCampaign.org. Appreciate your being with us today, Marty and Wayne. Thank you both so very much. I appreciate it as always. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. I've been your host, Joseph Grove. Be sure to visit AnimalWellnessAction.org to find out about all of our legislative efforts, subscribe to our newsletters, and link up with our social media channels. Want to subscribe to this podcast? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and we'll be back real soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.